Hey, welcome to Textual Healing. I'm your host, Mallory Smart. On today's episode, I'll be interviewing Andrew Wilt from 1111 Press. For some fun context, we originally were supposed to record this episode on January 6th, but for obvious reasons, we had to postpone. We ended up recording a week afterwards, but the energy is still definitely felt. But back to Andrew. He is a writer, publisher, and musician who once ran his own record label. It's also rad to say he's a fellow Midwesterner. In a world full of writers from the coast, I've managed to find someone who actually understands our regional habits and accents for a hot minute. Later, we go into a wide array of subjects that are both tiny and huge in the indie lit world today in an abstract way that's only been done a few times on textual healing. He gives us an in-depth look at his past, where we chat about books, religion, society, and obviously, music. At some point in the episode, Andrew and I discuss the book, Autobiography of a Yogi. Pick it up. It's great. It's a very good, mindful read. At the time, I couldn't figure out which copy I had. After much digging, I found mine, and it's sadly the orange one, not the blue. If you listen long enough, you'll understand why it's a thing. Not wanting to give away too much else, I think it's time we start the show. How's the weather by you? Uh, so it was warm today, but I think that we're going to get some snow tomorrow and the next day. Same here. Yeah, like we're under like a winter storm advisory, but I don't know. I don't know anymore. Like... I feel like we, we've had such a mild winter. I think we're only going to get like four or six inches of snow, but they're making a big deal about it. So I don't know what it's like in Chicago. What? Yeah. How is? How are things there? Uh, there's some snow on the ground, but it is calling for a bit of a winter snowstorm tomorrow. The only reason I asked is because we're Midwesterners here. Yeah. <laughs> you and I. <laughs> uh-huh. I'm just like, yeah, that's the first thing we always ask each other, isn't it? Like, hey, how's the weather? Yeah. Always. Always. <laughs> uh, there's like a funny Midwest accent, uh, little things. Like like you just said, like always. <laughs> oh, like, yeah. al- always, but always. It's just, oh, there yeah. are so many things I've learned. Like uh, other people call pop soda and stuff like that. Oh, yeah, sure. Although I've like learned just to call it soda so people don't know I'm from the Midwest, but then I'll drop a <laughs> y'all and they'll be like, where the fuck you from? Right. <laughs> yeah. It's it's interesting, uh the like habits of Midwest people. Uh so like something I noticed because I um I grew up in, in Michigan and then I moved to Seattle, Washington. And so this is gonna be kinda weird and out of nowhere, but uh people in the Midwest <laughs> pe- people in the Midwest eat ketchup like whatever you're eating that you're dipping into the ketchup is the vehicle to just eat ketchup. Like we eat so much ketchup. And (laughs) so like, you know, going out for like, uh, you know, drinks or whatnot with, with new friends in Seattle area, you know, they just like, you know, have their fries and they just kind of like dip into it and just kind of like a little peck. And I'm over there like spooning ketchup in my mouth, which is kind of like normal. (laughs) Yeah you go to a hot dog stand anywhere in chicago and you ask for a chicago like hot dog with ketchup they'll just give you plain hot dog so oh really yeah, yeah. i didn't know that well wow. it is just not a thing here 
But if you just walk across the street to like a McDonald's, you're good. They'll just give you the ketchup. Nice. <laughs> I know. Just strange things to just kick off the podcast with, right? Yeah. Right? Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. I was just like reading up on you and I was like, oh my God, I'm so going to get along with you. <laughs> <laughs> so what, what specifically drew your attention? Okay. So this is the dumbest thing, but I was looking at the uh, Twitter page for 1111 Press. Uh-huh. And I love how you guys say we're nonconformists, just like everyone else. <laughs> yeah, I feel like, uh, well, I mean, like starting in music, too, like everything that I've been part of, it's always been like outsider. It's always been like, you know, we're non-mainstream, we're non. And then it kind of gets to the point where there is kind of like, there is kind of like a mainstream within the like nonconformists. And then you kind of get to the point where it's like, I'm so counterculture, like, I don't like counterculture. And so it's just become like a joke for me. <laughs> um, what my brother would say to me when I was growing up. <laughs> he was a football player oh, really? and I was <laughs> drinking PBR and torn jeans and everything. And he's like, do you want to go to the game? And I was like, no. He's like, no, I know. You're a nonconformist, just like everyone else. Yeah. <laughs> So I was like, all right, you get me, maybe. I, I just kind of put that on there jokingly as, you know, kind of making fun of just just to not take ourselves too seriously, because I think that, yeah, there's definitely people out there who who take it too seriously or like make a point of, you know, if if a book is being read by more than a couple hundred people, then they don't want to read it. That's just kind of goofy. I'm just not part of it. I don't I just kind of tune everyone out. <laughs> posted that I was uh, watching a Father John Misty concert on YouTube before doing the podcast. And as I was sending it, I was like, shit, everyone's going to think I'm really dorky and mainstream now. <laughs> yeah, no, you need to do something like totally subversive that, you know, to like save face. Yeah, I don't even know what that would be. I don't know if I have to find now like some like really obscure like 60s like counterculture music or some shoegazing. Lo-fi, I don't know. Something that no one has ever heard of. Maybe I'll just make my own band. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Here's this, like, uh, Peruvian, you know, mystic that uses, you know, sticks and rocks. Total, Totally sick beats, you know. <laughs> <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah, I, I like... Uh, <laughs> like, the uh, I've, I've seen videos of... Uh, people with like YouTube channels going to like Lollapalooza or, you know, big like music festivals and they're talking to people and they're just like making up band names and they're like, Oh yeah. Like, are you excited to see, you know, Dogfish head? And they're like, Oh yeah, I love Dogfish head. And it's like, no, <laughs> like that band doesn't even exist, but they're like, <laughs> who comes up with that shit? I love it. Yeah. I don't know. How'd you come up with the name for 1111 Press? There's like a weird like hand sign you have to do with it, but <laughs> no, I'm just joking. Uh, um, uh, <laughs> I, I don't know. I've, I've told the story a couple of different ways because um, all origin stories should be a little ambiguous, but I don't know. It's... <laughs> Uh, 
it just it seemed right the the number 11 was something that kept on coming up and uh one of the the people who started 1111 with me um i don't know we, we were reading like philosophy but i don't know it's, it's just the, the the number 11 kept on coming up and then uh whenever they said 11 i'd say 1111 because i don't know i mean so this is another like midwest thing that I don't know if it's specific to the Midwest or not, but growing up, like in elementary school, whenever the clock was eleven eleven, people would just be like eleven eleven, make a wish, eleven eleven, make a wish, and you had to like make a wish at eleven eleven. So that kind of, I mean, because so, he he's originally from the Midwest, and then you know me also, and it was kind of like this common bond that we had. So we started joking around with like eleven eleven. Um, so, I mean, that's. And then, I mean, you can read into that more about what 1111 means. Uh, I've I've answered it a few different ways in interviews, just because it, the meaning kind of evolves over time. Uh, I, I, I respect numerology. Uh, I think that anything that you give meaning to becomes like it can become like a meaningful object or a meaningful number. Uh, so I've like answered it that way because 11 and 11, 11 is like a mystical number, uh, an angelic number. So there's some people who really like it for those reasons. But, uh, I think that honestly, it's like whenever you, you put your mind to something. So like I see 11 and 11, 11 all the time, but it's because it's on your mind. It's on my mind, right? So, like, I pick it out. Like, I could probably, you know, just, like, the number 42, like, the meaning of life in the Douglas Adams books, right? Oh, my God. I adore you for saying that. <laughs> so, I'm sure that some people see 42 all the time. Or, you know, they'll get something or, like, there'll be order number 42. And they're like, you know, it was meant to be. This is the meaning of life, you know, in this burger or whatever I'm going to eat. Uh but yeah, I mean, I think there's like a lot of Skinnerian psychology at play <laughs> with the numerology. You're bringing just so many high school memories to my mind right now. <laughs> Sorry, I had, I had a big group of dorky friends and we were all obviously in the honor rolls courses and everything. And yeah, Douglas Adams, big with us. So we would just say 42 randomly and people would be like, what the fuck are you talking about? Please explain it. And I was like, no, got be in with us. I wish we had a cool explanation for Maudlin House. Well, yeah, what's, uh, what's your, how did that happen? Model and house. Like, what? <laughs> That's a horrible way of asking. I'm sorry. It's been a long day. How did you come to the name Model and House? It's a cool name. Like, and you have a really cool emblem. So, or logo. I have to tell you, everything that has happened with our press has all been by accident and by chance. Like, I don't know how any of it got planned. I was listening to a band, uh, Maudlin Strangers, on Spotify once, and I really liked the name Maudlin. And I was like, yeah, I vibe with that. So that was just one out of like 30 different names I had that I was considering. As for the emblem, uh, I don't know. I think I was kind of going towards something. I think it was kind of more towards Tin House. I'd have to look at what their logos are like again. I definitely think Melville House is a similar one to us. But yeah, we had some friends who are artists and were like, hey, see what you can do with this. And they made it look all rickety and everything and nostalgic and dark and maudlin -y. So 
Yeah. Yeah, it looks it looks cool. I like it. Thank you. Everyone says it. I like it because it makes us look so professional that people think that like we legit are a legit shit press. Well, I won't tell anyone. If you don't tell anyone that, you know, I have my doubts. <laughs> <laughs> I think that that's, that's like a lot of what it means to be in this like small press or indie space is that, I mean, we're going at it. I mean, I, I know you work really hard at what you do and uh, everyone else I know who runs presses or journals, uh, they work really hard. The authors work really hard. Everyone's doing the best that they can, but it still kind of feels like uh, I'm getting away with something or it's kind of like, have I made it yet? Have, <laughs> I don't know if you ever feel that way or not, but. Oh no, um, I definitely get the vibe. Yeah. It's kind of like. Um, I get more of an oh, imposter shoot. syndrome. By... That's, that, that's exactly what I was looking for. The imposter syndrome. Yeah. Yeah. But, I mean, it's sometimes cool. Sometimes it's one of those, oh, God, I can't believe that they think that I'm cooler than I am. But, yeah. <laughs> I get yeah. very nervous, especially when people are like, I can't wait to meet you in real life. And I'm like, fuck. No, you're going to have expectations. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Thank God for this pandemic. <laughs> so you don't have to, like, meet you in purpose. <laughs> yeah. Uh. Yeah, see you at AWP in, like, three years. <laughs> God, I almost went to AWP this year. Oh, really? <laughs> this was the first year I was almost going to go. Um, what happened almost a year ago to this day is I wiped out and I messed up my rotator cuff. So I had to go to an orthopedic surgeon and then I had to do um, all this physical therapy. And through that physical therapy, I caught covid what? Yeah. Wow. So it's actually really interesting because I didn't know I had it at the time. And I was just about to buy the plane tickets and shit too. And I even asked my orthopedic surgeon, I was like, is this COVID a big deal? Should I worry about it? I'm 90% sure that guy's a Republican now. Um, <laughs> he's like, more people catch the flu. You're going to be fine. This is like way big of a oh, deal. Wow. The news is making it up to be like a hoax. Oh, wow. I can tell you, as someone who had COVID now, I, I think I saved some people by not going yeah. to AWP. Thanks for not. Yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> that's that's crazy. Yeah, thanks for not. I mean, going, I, I think that they ended up canceling it partway through, or it was really like skeleton attendance. I think it was skeleton Anyways. attendance. I know that a lot of people pulled out last minute. Uh, I do know that everyone I eventually, like here in Chicago, was by got it so i i spread you're a spreader yeah wow well i mean at, at that time like we didn't really know anything about it i remember we didn't uh, know like the initial symptoms and stuff well, either so yeah yeah there was so like around that time i think it was like i forgot when it was what initially scheduled but i was supposed to go to uh prog uh for the prog Microfest pmf mm -hmm. that they do every year and I think it was the end of April when it was originally scheduled. And uh, like John Treffery from Inside the Castle was going to be there. And I was really excited because John and I haven't met in person. And we were going to meet in Prague, even though uh, he's in Kansas and I'm in Minnesota. So, you know, we're not really too far away as is. But um, anyways, I was just super, super excited to, to be invited to this event. And uh, him and I would like, 
you know, every week kind of like check in, like, are you still going? I'm still going. Like, I'm not going to miss out on a trip to Prague. Like, are you going to go? <laughs> and uh, then eventually, like, the U.S. shut down and, you know, uh, we realized that the the uh, the Trump, you know, the White House had been downplaying it the whole time. And, uh, you know, COVID was a lot worse than what they were reporting it to be. And so thankfully, uh, we didn't go. But yeah. thankfully, yeah. you didn't. Yeah. I mean, it could have been a lot worse. Have you had it yet? Or no. I like how I say yet, like it's a, <laughs> an eventuality. The vaccine's out there. You'll be good, hopefully. Yeah. Yeah. My, uh, my wife is a nurse, so she just got the uh, second dose of the vaccine. Any side effects? Um, not really. She had a headache after the second dose. But that's just kind of, you know, whenever you get um, immunizations, it's your body uh, producing you know, the antibodies and, and whatnot. So, um, but no, she's, she's totally fine. Mm -hmm. I but, know that I'm pretty back there in line in terms of the vaccine. Where are you? Yeah, I'm, I'm <laughs> as like a healthy, like 31 year old. I'm, <laughs> I'm probably like the last person on the list. I know the New York Times did a thing where you can calculate where you are, like, on the list. Then I even asked my doctor, and I was like, are there really 23 million people ahead of me? And he's like, that's pretty accurate. Yeah, I'll probably be vaccinated, like, a year from now. <laughs> <laughs> It'll be a dead uh, thing by then. Yeah. Like, COVID-19, where the fuck are you? It's COVID-20 now, man. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I... I wonder how history is going to think about this time or about like COVID. If like, you know, like my grandkids are going to be dressing up in Halloween costumes as like, you know, COVID, <laughs> COVID maskers. I don't know. I think it'd be uh, really funny, but I mean, now I'm just trying to think if I've ever seen anybody like dress up in any pandemic, like apparel for Halloween in my life. Well, you were you were in the honor, you know. All right, that's true. We're the nerds. I'm sure there are some pretty creative Halloween costumes. Yeah, honestly, we didn't dress up too much. We would just kind of hang out, watch horror movies, and eat a lot of candy. Nice. Yeah, we were pretty lame-ass people. You can say it. But no, it's so funny that you think about the history and everything. My boyfriend and I were just talking about it. I mean, because I try and stay away from being too timely in the events. But obviously, say like last week, we were not going to be able to get through it without mentioning that the Capitol was stormed. Today is another iconic day in history. It's the first time that a president has been impeached twice. And it's like, dude, what are we going to tell our kids? This is kind of wild this year. Yeah, and, you know, so we, we had to reschedule this. We were going to do it last week. Mm -hmm. And last week today was the day that uh, the group stormed the Capitol. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, at this point, there's, like, so many news stories every single week. I'm kind of, like, numb to it all, which sounds bad <laughs> in a certain way. But it's kind of like, okay, well, well, what, well, what next? Like, everyone is just as, like, numb to it as you are right now. I mean, there were things like, when was it that, like, Trump's taxes were released? Because, like, what, like that know. week, like, every single day, there was, like, like, a huge thing that, like, 
unprecedented thing that happened like every single day and then like his whole tax is just like everyone stopped talking about it because like other big new things <laughs> came out <laughs> it's just i mean i can't even keep all the bad things in my head uh, i mean i wonder if that's just like exclusive to this year because it's been so much or do you think it's because of the news cycle i don't know i mean the the news has consistently done what they do mm-hmm. uh i mean but I think it was like Kierkegaard who was always railing against the press. I mean, so people have always been critics of the press and the press has always written stories in a way mm-hmm. to sell uh, newspapers or sell TV uh, ads or radio ads or clicks now. Um, so, I mean, they've consistently done their thing throughout history. I So I don't think that they are doing anything different. I mean... Um, division or like how they report on stories they they do it in a way to uh so you know so nowadays like a lot of people or a lot of organizations get paid by 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 the click and so um like talking to like i had a friend who worked for uh, a media company and he wrote like i don't know like a dozen articles a day and it was like a pretty like big national uh company but i mean he just like write these articles just you know, like in 20 minutes, because he got paid, like, it was something stupid. It was like eight or $12 per article. And like 80% of his time was spent on the title. Like, how many clicks can I get? Because the more clicks that he got, the faster he moved up, um, you know, in the, as, as a writer within that company. It is the definition of clickbait. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, I mean, people, like, if you talk to people about, like, the news they're reading, I'm sure that most people are just reading the headlines. I like that uh, Twitter, I don't know when they did it. I I don't know, this year did, they decided to develop a conscience. I don't know why. But around, I think it was around the election, where they decided that if you're going to retweet, you had to do a quote retweet just to have that minute of hesitation to be like, did you really, really read the tweet or the article? Oh, okay. Um. I don't know if they did it everywhere, but I think it'd be really cool if there was more accountability towards something like that, just to kind of prove that you did read the article. Because I, I have friends who do that like crazy. And also they share it off of like the social media accounts that are pretty iffy. I don't know if you like, what was it, the other 98% group on Facebook and stuff like that. Yeah, I... I, I know that those places exist, but I try to try to not let it enter my my brain or my space. <laughs> uh, there's a there's a philosopher, uh, Alain de Botton. He uh, he writes a lot of like he's more famous for like his essays on relationships, but he he's written several books. He wrote a book about how um, about Proust and I think like how Proust can save your life. He wrote a book about architecture, uh, the architecture of happiness. Uh, he's a really fascinating writer, but he wrote a a book specifically about the news and about how basically he was calling for people just to stop all consumption of the news because, uh, the news is, um, what it does is it hijacks your emotions. And so you have these like big, big up and downs and it drains your energy. And so after reading a news article or scanning through a newspaper, uh, or your Twitter feed, because that's basically kind of like a new type of newspaper. Uh, 
you feel like a jumble mess. And so his argument is that you should just stop consuming any kind of media from the news. And if something big happens, uh, you'll someone will tell you. You don't need to be just plugged in to the media nonstop, constantly. It, it was almost like a peacefulness we had before we had our iPhones and the 24-hour news that started to get really popular in the late 70s, early 80s. This this almost really brings to mind this lyric I really like in a Simon and Garfunkel song, The Only Living Boy in New York, when he says, I get all the news I need on the weather report. And I think that really does apply here because it's like, what else do you really need to know if you're going to actually find out something that's actually like huge and important or something someone's bound to tell you? You don't need to be obsessing about it on your phone and on Twitter and if something big happens, uh, you'll someone will tell you. Like someone in your network is reading the news, and they'll let you know if people storm the Capitol. <laughs> but but you don't need to always be glued to it because it's going to take you away from the other good, important work that you should be doing. I feel you. Wow, I like how I just kind of like snuck music into that conversation. <laughs> yeah. I Trojan horsed that <laughs> in there. Yeah, yeah, we can, uh, <laughs> I feel like that's a good transition because this is about music, right? And the intersection between music and writing. So I just told you what the last music I listened to was Father John Misty. How about you? Uh, I've been listening to some like really weird stuff. So you're going to like out obscure <laughs> me? <laughs> yeah, um, I'm, I'm pretty slow. And so like when... I see someone like B.R. Yeager, uh, the author B.R. Yeager, when he posts something, like I, I usually like everything that he posts. And so like when he shares a new band, I immediately go check it out. And it's usually, you know, something I'm really into. Same thing with like John Treffery. Um, he posts like obscure black metal bands and, you know, whatever he posts, I'm like, oh, cool, like a new band. Because I just don't have, uh, I haven't prioritized that as far as like reaching out for, for new music. Uh, besides like music, I have, on in the background when I'm doing work or when I am uh, mm -hmm. writing. And so like that kind of music, I've been listening to a lot of um, like uh, monk, monk chants and like Hindu, like Tibetan, you know, like weird guttural sounds. You are not the only person we've spoken to who have been doing that. Oh, really? Yeah. It's probably something, you know, it's like the world's coming to an end. So we're all like trying to get into the, like meditative state of the world ending. I think it definitely <laughs> helps, you know, just to have like a non-lyrical somewhat, like something that kind of helps get you into a trance or um, I know Noah Cicero was telling me that he was listening to something. I'm not quite sure what it means. Throat singing? Oh, yeah, yeah. We're listening to the same thing. Yeah. We're in the same universe. Yeah. <laughs> it's uh, like, you know, you have the Tibetan monks who chant Om, but they they do it in a way where they've trained their bodies to do two separate notes at the same time. So they can like throat sing like two notes at once. And uh, I mean, at first, I think that it's shocking to most people because it does. I think that like most people would be like, how can anyone enjoy this? But when you sit down and you kind of take some deep breaths and you start listening to it, um, it is pretty calming. And so I'm, I'm really attracted to that. Uh, I'm also into, um, 
uh, Prasanna Yogananda. I'm probably saying his first name wrong, but uh, uh, he is the author of Autobiography of a Yogi, which is probably one of the I have top top selling, uh, uh, like you know, religious modern religious books of all time. Do you, so, do you have the orange cover or the blue cover? Uh, I would have to look over at my bookshelf. I think it's the orange cover. Oh, <laughs> there's like, uh, so there's like controversy about like which version you should read. And I was given the orange cover first yeah. and I, I really, really liked it. And so I started reading more about it. And uh, people online were talking about how uh, Yogananda's um, like monk disciples, they were like, they, they edited the autobiography and they took some things out and um i was like well that's kind of weird um and so someone mentioned that there's a blue version and uh it's uh, the unedited unedited 1946 version so i picked that up and it's a couple hundred pages longer i think and uh, i read that and uh similarly I, i really uh it really resonated with me and so that um it took me on like a quest of uh, what is, uh, you know, this yoga, Yogananda and, uh, the self-realization Institute. And, uh, there's like a big controversy with, um, this other group that, uh, was started by one of the disciples of Yogananda. Uh, and that group's called Ananda. And, uh, what I found just like looking at these uh, books and following the history from like the 1940s up until now is every religion has so much conflict and tension. So like the whole basis of like uh, Yogananda and this yogi coming from India to the United States and then becoming really popular in the like fifties and sixties and so on and so forth with uh, everything that was going on in the United States during that time. Um, You know, it was, it was founded on love and, uh, seeing that um, God and love can be in all religions. And um, they named themselves the Self-Realization Institute, which is finding, uh, finding truth within yourself. So uh, me being, uh, having a philosophical background, that's something that really speaks to me. Um, but anyways, uh, these two different sects of, you know, followers are really clashing butt heads. And it's just so uh, frustrating to think that this is what happens all the time whenever somebody gets a, a good idea. And I think about like Aldous Huxley, who um, I, he wrote something about how um, men are forever, you know, coming up with really good ideas but finding themselves victims to their homemade monsters. And that's exactly like I, I'm seeing firsthand from uh, Yogananda and uh, the Self-Realization Institute, and as it progressed over the several decades. So it's like a new religion, and it's already, it was like this really great idea, and then it already like imploded. Mm-hmm. So, I did not the, imagine you an Aldous Huxley fan. Oh, yeah, Aldous Huxley is one of my favorite authors. Uh, I think that like uh, Brave New World was a book that really spoke to me when I started reading a lot. I'm one of those annoying people who say it's superior to 1984. Yeah. I think it's much more similar to what we're actually facing now. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you look at 1984, that's a culture created out of fear. Whereas Brave New World is uh, 
it's a culture of love and happiness. And if, if you're unhappy, you should just take more drugs. Mm-hmm. It, it's like a mixture of like complacency and drugs and we'll give you whatever you need to like distract you from everything. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I think that's more of an accurate description of the United States. Yeah. So I really like that. That's actually one of my top 10 favorite books, Brave New World. Yeah. Yeah. Me too. There's, it's, uh, it's so beautifully written. There's, there's passages in there that, um, I think that like at the time that I, I read it, uh, I really found a lot in common with the main character who is an outcast. Mm-hmm. And, uh, there's this, there's this uh, part in the book where he's been thrown out and he has discovered, uh, time and death and God. And, uh, I don't know. I, I felt a lot like that my whole life where I felt outside of, uh, I guess this is going back to the counterculture thing, but I've, I've even felt like outside of the counterculture. Cause like when I, um, when I was in bands and I played music, uh, I was even like an outsider within that too. And I think it would help if you said what kind of music you were playing. Yeah. Uh, uh, I played music that was basically, it sounds like somebody's, you know, the, the sound that, uh, you know, a fist makes when it hits somebody's face. It's like pretty intense, uh, screaming, fast, fastly played. Um, and I, I initially got my start playing in music that was like Christian music, like Christian heavy metal, like screamo music. And then that transitioned, um, into more secular stuff as I became more angry. (laughs) It's such an interesting, uh, is there like, was it like Christian metalcore or just Christian screamo? Is that what you call it? Or, well, I don't know. I think that like, cause so where where I grew up in Grand Rapids, Michigan, uh, it's like it's a really heavily like Protestant Christian area. Mm-hmm. Uh, so when President Trump was elected, he was and he uh, announced that he you know was going to be the president. Um, I mean, what was that? Two thousand sixteen feels like forever ago. But he he was in Grand Rapids, Michigan, and he was with Betsy DeVos. The DeVos family is really big in Grand Rapids, and Betsy DeVos is the former Secretary of Education who uh, did so many terrible things in the last few years for education. But um, Grand Rapids is is just a really conservative place, and so I feel like uh, it must be like what it's like growing up um, in some communities like in Salt Lake City where everyone's Mormon, uh, except here, like in Grand Rapids, everyone is you know, it goes to like a really crazy church that believes in really obscure things. And I happened to go to one that believed really, really weird things. Uh, and it's taken me a while to, well, it was kind of my, my late teens and early twenties to come out of, um, what I believe was, uh, was like a cult. And, Mm -hmm. uh, I've, I've gone to therapists and things since then, uh, one specifically for, um, spiritual abuse. Um, just because of how indoctrinated I was and how crazy it was uh, to be alone in the world that was separate from, uh, from what I grew up in. 
Believe me, you're not somebody who is a stranger to me. I know a lot of people similar to you who have grown up in similar situations. Almost all of them are atheists now, or one is a Satanist. I won't understand what happened there. But uh, I'm always very intrigued as to like what causes the uh, shift in beliefs. Uh, well, I, I think... Um it's it's tough because when when I when I think of my friends who are still uh, in in Grand Rapids, and even people who I played music with, who um, we kind of left that that Christian scene together as we were reading more philosophy, a lot of them have really uh, retroverted back to what was familiar to them, uh, and then they they see their their phase in their late tween, teens and and twenties. As you know, that was when I was doing a bunch of drugs and I was away from God and now I'm going to come back to God. And uh, so they go back to what was comfortable. But, but then others, and I think that this is, this is me, what happened to me is that it's kind of like a pendulum. So I was on a very, very, the very, very far end of uh, the religious side and a very particular oppressive religious side that um, didn't acknowledge uh, gay people, LGBT pe- uh, people and thought they were going to hell. Uh, they didn't acknowledge women's rights. Um, they, they thought that the Holocaust wasn't all that bad because the Jews were going to hell anyways. And so all these really crazy beliefs, like we, uh, in the email I said that, we, 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 we believed that uh, the Pope was the Antichrist. And uh, so, I mean, and I could go on and on and on. And I think that, uh, you know, they're, they're kind people with these really bad beliefs. And uh, so I really shifted away from that when I got into the more secular world and I saw that, you know, I had like a firsthand experience where my best friend came out as gay and I didn't think that there, like a God would send this person to like eternal damnation. Um, So I started questioning all aspects of that and I saw all the hypocrisy within the church, which is I think that like what Anton LaVey in the Satanic Bible uh, what he gets at, which is um, he would play organ uh, at the circus and he would play organ um, for the church. And he saw all of these um, people who'd be going to church uh, with their families, um, you know, the night before they were being really promiscuous with a bunch of women. They were drinking a lot. And that's where he saw that like tension between religion and um, the opposite of that, which he called Satanism, which is basically glorified atheism with rituals. And, and so I, I swung the opposite way too. And I went just as far to the other side where, uh, I, I mean, I obviously like I, I, I read Anton LaVey. I, 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 uh, you know, thought that it was the hedonism, right? The maximize, maximize pleasure. Uh-huh. But then, uh, I got to a point where that really wasn't doing it for me. Uh, because if you, if you look at like people who are seeking a lot of pleasure, um, a, a lot of them, they, they can't get enough. So uh, I developed a problem with, with drinking and uh, even people like, like Elvis, for example, that uh, he's been coming up a lot recently because um, the vaccines, you know, he, he took a vaccine uh, on TV. So he, he was this, you know, figure, he was like, uh, like a huge celebrity at his time. And he had a terrible drug problem that eventually led to his death. 
um, people who have a lot of money are usually have a higher rate of suicide. And so I started looking at that aspect of the other side, you know, of, of this pendulum about how you can have a lot of money, you can have a lot of fame, you can have a lot of power, a lot of influence, you can have a lot of physical, sensual pleasures, uh, but that's not really going to, um, you're not going to find happiness. And so that's why I kind of, you know, took the pendulum now the other way. And I'm trying to find that center where I don't want to be too far in either extreme. And what I found is, I guess, what I'm, you know, when we're talking about music, about the chants and things. Um, so I, I've been getting more into like yoga and uh, finding that, that God um, that isn't part of any religion, but um, exists beyond religion. Because I think that the, per the, the thing that the people should be seeking isn't, it can't really be defined and it's up to us to define what that is, which sounds a lot like the 12 steps note I'm saying it right now. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's, you know, about finding the peace within. I mean, I, I feel of course, you. Of course. I mean, I, I definitely enjoy the chants and the yoga and I was born Catholic. According to my mom, I'm going to die Catholic. Um, that's just, <laughs> we're our own kind of cult. Don't worry. Um, but I don't believe in any form of God, but I actually find a lot of peace in, um, I go to a Buddhist temple or I did before COVID and I would just go to meditate and hear the chants and everything. And that definitely helped. Yeah. That's, I would do that almost like right before writing. There was a coffee shop that was like right next to the temple. And then I would just go and really quickly write as much as I could. That's awesome. Yeah. I think. Yeah, I, I think that as soon as somebody says, like, God is this or God is that, uh, it totally dismisses the whole point of it. It's kind of like, uh, are, are you a fan of Alan Watts? Do you, oh, yeah. So I, I think that he does a good job of um, describing, like, the kind of path that I'm on. Which Go is, on. <laughs> <laughs> we have to assume that most people don't know. <laughs> Alan Watts. Uh, so... Anyways, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> Alan, Alan Watts was, um, he was uh, British, but then he came to the U.S. and um, he studied Eastern philosophy and popularized it in the Yeah, definitely did a Buddhism. Do you pronounce it Taoism or Taoism? I was never sure. I think that it can go either way depending on who you're talking to. Yeah, obviously all Eastern religions he was pretty fond of. Yeah, and I think that that's, that's part of my attraction to uh, Eastern religions is uh, that they more focus on, on love instead of uh, law. I think that a lot of uh, Christians and Catholics, a lot of uh, people who traditionally follow Jesus, they focus on like the law of like you have to follow these rules. And I think that a lot of Eastern religions focus on love and you should follow love and like where your heart takes you. Doesn't that fascinate you? Like how like a different region of the entire world could just like have an entirely different philosophy. Like they're just all about love. Whereas Western world, we're all about structure. Like, how do you think that started? Well, uh, there's a really good book by Robert Wright called the evolution of God. And he's a, an evolutionary biologist, um, who, 
wrote his kind of like claim to fame was or he wrote this book called the, the moral animal but uh he's after writing that book about evolutionary biology he's moved back and talked about the evolution of god and this kind of kind of like bigger broader cultural concept where god in early societies was many things and then as we've progressed in society god became smaller and smaller and smaller and now god is just one thing uh which is like we're we're monotheistic and uh, I think that, like, we've really broken away from nature because a lot of those, like, early societies were really in tune with, with nature. And uh, I think that a lot of those deities, if they ever existed, have, have left us to our own devices and we're on our own. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, I, I think that it's, it's just because, like, we're, we have, like, this Puritan or, like, this... Everyone, everyone in the United States came here because we left something. We were pissed off. Like, our... If, if it wasn't our parents or us, it was our great-grandparents or so on and so forth, you know, within a line of generations. But that that work ethic has been instilled in every American. That's why um, you can't tell people in the United States to wear masks because... They're so individualistic. And, they're like, you yeah. can't tell me what to do. You're going to like, I'm not going to wear a mask. Like, if you tell me to wear a mask, even if it's for the greater good to help your common like you know your fellow citizen in the united states <laughs> see they left those countries so they can be themselves here right and yeah, yeah. Like, but i i think that that that's why a lot of people in the west or in the united states um see god that the way that they do is they've, they've reinterpreted the bible uh to fit their work ethic or to fit the american spirit Definitely, definitely. So do you want to talk about your uh, music label? Sure. That was a really good good, uh, tangent. Thanks for letting me get that in there. No, I loved it. (laughs) I love tangents. I don't know if I wrote that in the email. I did it with everybody else when I was planning podcasts, but I was like, load me up with some stories here, people. I want to be inspired. Well, so um, playing music, that so we, we, we kind of like that if, if we're looking at the the timeline so uh playing music that i started like writing and playing music when i was about 15 and then that kind of progressed up until my early 20s and then uh when i was 18 right when i was graduating high school uh i started a record label that was just basically like producing demo tapes for my friends and i like because we couldn't afford studio time um because i mean we really didn't have that much money so you can't like afford whatever it was like a hundred dollars an hour for studio time um so i bought a lot of equipment with with a really good friend of mine and we started a record label a quote-unquote record label right because it was basically just demo tapes but um that's yeah it's it's it really helped set up set me up for becoming a publisher later uh just because it's like there there's there's a lot of crossover between music and publishing but i think there's i think music is always has always been ahead of the game um mm-hmm. but anyways yeah so i i started this this record label um and then um we had like a couple bands that that we recorded as well as the ones that i was in and we were, we were growing, but we weren't around for too long uh, before. So I, I graduated high school. I started going to college, and I was um, living with this guy. And this is the friend that I, that I mentioned who 
um, we both grew up in, you know, the same community where being gay wasn't acceptable. And he came out to me and said that he was gay. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was really hard because he was hoping that I felt the same way about him that he felt about me. And having really no context for what that meant, uh, I, I probably didn't handle that in the right way. <laughs> but I still loved him as a friend. Um, but just kind of like, you know, not there really knowing. There is no right way to handle that, I feel. <sighs> yeah, I don't really. I, I mean, I, I, I try not to beat myself up because we were, we were both going through, through difficult times for, for various reasons. But um, so I, I was going to uh, Grand Valley State University, which is in West Michigan. It's right outside of Grand Rapids where I grew up. And uh, uh, I had, I had a rough relationship with, with my parents uh, when I left to go to school. Uh, I basically wasn't invited back to uh, my parents' house only like as a, as a visitor, but, um, there was like a very, you know, like you're on your own now kind of a thing. And, uh, you know, I, I kind of, I went out to go like buy books for class and, uh, I received, a an angry phone call saying basically your shit's at your door. Hope no one steals it. And so I, I was on really rocky terms with, with my family, uh, because of a lot of the like religious things and, uh, Then it was, it was in November. So like, I kind of like had split ties with them, um, which is really hard because now we've begun, begun to mend that relationship. But, um, in November I woke up, someone had, had woken me up, uh, and it was the police, but not only was the police, but it was the FBI. And, uh, I had no idea why they were in my apartment. And, uh, they started asking me like really weird questions. And, uh, I mean, they, they wouldn't let me leave. <laughs> and, uh, someone was going through like, you know, just, there was so, there were like, a lot of police officers there. Um, and I had this like intense interview and I had no idea what had happened. And at the end of it, after like three or four hours, uh, it turned out that this, this friend of mine who was like my best friend in high school and had come up to me as gay and, uh, we had this record label together. Uh, he had sent some emails, some really angry emails, and was threatening to do uh, malicious things on campus. Uh, he was going to be kind of like a like a school shooter. Uh, oh, wow. he, was gonna, he was going to like blow up some buildings. Uh, and of course, he never he was a really, like a really kind-hearted person, but he felt all that anger inside of him, and he didn't know where to place it. Uh, so he like went through um, different proxies to like hide these emails that he was sending to various news outlets. Uh, and so like he was going through like Korea and there was like another country. So like the Korean police were like investigating this at the same time. It was like super intense. But um, yeah, th after that event, uh, I felt really, really alone. So the, the FBI, they, they took my all my recording equipment they took my laptop they took my phone uh which was like flip phones back then it was 2008 and uh they even took like my calculator for class i had was no it the uh, ti-85 
Yeah, it was like one of those because they, they they were looking for anything with batteries. They took like you know like the like a remote control like you know for like your TV because they were looking for anything that like could be used to create like a bomb. Yeah. And so like I had like my my family uh, was you know basically like kind of half like a half foot in my life, half foot out my life, but like we were on the rocks. Uh, I like you know my best friend was taken away. And I probably would never uh, want to talk to him again, uh, just because of every. Th- I mean, this was like a really, you know, it was like front news, you know, front page of the newspaper kind of a thing. And uh, yeah, it was that was like a huge, huge part in my life. So uh, I had to shut down the the record label just because of his association with it. And uh, I still continued to play music for a little while. Um, but that was like a huge like pivot and, and turning point in my life. And you said you definitely took a lot of the uh, spirit from the record label and applied it to Eleven Eleven. Yeah, of course. That's uh, I continued like playing music, and then um, I, I like you still had the vibe like where you yeah. wanted to curate and help other people get their words out work out in general um every single song that i wrote uh i wrote a short story with it because we were screaming and we were angry uh, no one's going to understand the lyrics anyways so i wanted there to be something more to it and then um i kind of found a lot of peace in that writing and the, the writing of the stories and so i decided to quit music altogether because there was so much drama of trying to coordinate uh, four or five people to practice or like do, you know, go play a show. And, uh, I wanted to do something that I could just do by myself. And so I, I decided to, to put a pause on music and focus on writing. And that eventually led to me starting this alternative newspaper at, at the university I was attending. And, uh, that was a lot of fun. I, I got, uh, like we were recognized as like an official student organization. They gave us a budget to like print, and uh, it was a pretty conservative university. So we published a lot of like satire and kind of like poking fun at things on campus. And we would publish articles that wouldn't be in the, the, the mainstream newspaper. So like discussions about the, you know, should, should marijuana be legal on campus? So of course that's like something that I'm sure that all newspapers, you know, student newspapers are talking about now, but uh, 12, 13 years ago, uh, that really wasn't something that um, that my conservative university was comfortable talking about. So, so and it we, wasn't definitely part about like the national dialogue quite yet. Yeah, right. I mean, if you think about it, like uh, like when Hillary Clinton and Obama when they were running against you know each other for the Democratic ticket uh, in two thousand eight. A uh, big thing that came up was was gay marriage, and um, I think at that point, like Hillary was against it, and yeah. so we have to think about like those times. I mean, we've progressed a lot as a, as a society, but we forget about how like um, people were still having a conversation like, well, maybe it's okay to be gay, but I don't think they should be married, or like you know, marijuana is still like really bad. Uh, <laughs> uh, but but now it's like. Um, you can go in a lot of states have, have legalized it and you can go to a pot shop just like you go to a, a liquor store. 
Um, oh, yeah. Chicago, it's definitely legal here. It's the running joke. My niece is about to be uh, 21. We always do it where we get someone who's 21 alcohol, and I was like, oh, we can get her weed this time. Right. I was so, like, met with crickets when I said that. <laughs> well, yeah, so, like, we've we've changed a lot culturally in the last... Very quickly, um, yeah. yeah t- 10, 12 years. Um, but anyways... Uh, but with that change, I mean, you know, we have a president who's just about to be sworn in who actually still believes that marijuana is a gateway drug, so, yeah. Yeah, well... Hopefully we won't backtrack too much. Uh, I don't think we'll do anything <laughs> to change anything, but I just thought that one was worth noting. I, I still find it hilarious that he hasn't changed his stance on that one. Yeah, I think it's, yeah, I mean, when you're that age, it's hard to change your beliefs, I think. What is he? Is he 70? He's not 78 yet, is he? I don't know. Is Is he alive still? <laughs> <laughs> it's like a bad joke. I mean, he's oh, better no. than what we have have in office currently. Like uh, I think, the I think Disneyland he's like, animatronics. He's like a Weekend at Bernie's kind of a. <laughs> See, say Weekend at Bernie's, and you're just making me like feel horrible that Bernie didn't get further than uh, I, I know. But um, yeah, I'm sure you knew. I think most people in the lit world were definitely more to like the left, left. But yeah, yeah. I always like hate to assume people's politics, but then like I do meet people who are like shockingly religious or shockingly like conservative in politics. So I always find myself having to correct myself. Yeah, you know, you should never correct yourself if you believe something. But (laughs) mainly just trying not to offend anybody. But see, I naturally somehow manage to do it. Yeah, uh, in 2016, um, when I was living in Seattle, I was a like a delegate. Like I was, we we do caucuses in Washington, and so I was elected from like my little tiny caucus to like be a representative at the legislative level. Mm-hmm. And I represented Bernie, so um, yeah. I mean, I was a supporter of of Bernie Sanders. I See, I like a lot of scene. Sounds so fun. I. I... <laughs> It seems so like it's a participation. I it's, like that. Here are all the neighbors that, you know, are you're annoyed with because, you know, their dog poops in your yard or whatever. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> yeah, it was um, it, it was the first time like I did a caucus was was in Washington because uh, growing up in Michigan, they didn't have it there. It seems like it's definitely a cool experience. I'm still jealous that you got to be in Seattle. I've always wanted to move there. It's a, it's an interesting place. I like that they have a pretty cool <laughs> literature scene there. They do. I noticed that they do. it's very uh, anarchy based. Yeah, it's 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 really cool. So that's how I yeah. So how I got to Seattle um, was uh, I left Michigan because I realized that what I was doing there wasn't going to get me where I wanted to be. Where I wanted to be was a published author. And I went to where all my favorite authors were, was the, the Pacific Northwest. And so uh, I just like, you know, I was angry. <laughs> I had this all this residual anger. And uh, I, I, was, I dropped out of school. And I was like, this, this writing program, it, you know, isn't going to work for me. It's not going to work for anybody. And I need to go like have these like actual experiences. And so I, I went to Seattle and uh, I was like running away from, from everything in Michigan. And a lot of those things followed me to Washington. 
uh, such as like, you know, drinking too much. And I had to deal with that there. But um, I met a, like, I was like really diligent. I, I really wanted to meet people, um, you know, who are writing, who are getting book deals. And so uh, when I got out there, I, I met people who were doing just that. And I became friends with, with many of them. And um, I started talking to people uh, who, I, who I looked up to or like who had connections, like, um, you know, people who were going to get their books published with like Soft Skull. And at the time I was like, well, I don't know what Soft Skull is. I don't know what Catapult you know, what are those presses? And uh, now, like, I see them as, like, being medium-sized presses, you know, just, like, outside of the small press. But um, that was my introduction to um, what small presses are. Uh, and there's um, there's some, like, small poetry presses out in Seattle. Um, there's uh, Fantagraphics, the, the graphic novel publisher. Uh, mm-hmm. There's a lot of cool things out there. And then also in, in Portland, um, I was... Uh, I was a big fan of uh, Lazy Fascist and Eraserhead. And, I'm so, uh, so sad that Lazy Fascist isn't doing stuff anymore. Yeah, yeah, me, me too. Uh, Cameron Pierce was, uh, I mean, he did a lot of really good things for, I guess, like now, like looking back at it, I'm, it's called like the alt-lit movement. Um, I think that that's maybe like a poorly chosen uh, name for that because there's a lot of negativity associated with some of those writers but um cameron pierce i mean he like sam pink uh was on lazy fascist and i feel like um was responsible for him to be as successful as he is today and uh, matthew Rivere, who does mm-hmm. like a lot of different covers i mean he's like he's actually wh- done a few of malton cover- covers too <laughs> Yeah, I can't remember how many thousand covers he told me, but because uh, I was talking to him recently, because we're going to be reissuing his um, his his books, and he was just like, "Oh yeah, I've done such and such thousand covers," and it's like, "Oh my goodness!" <laughs> he can churn them out so quickly too. Like, and they're they're all really really good. Yeah, I mean, he's a he's a freelancer. You know, he's like he's got to you know gotta gotta make it good. Gotta. I mean, I really respect people like that. Well, I mean, you're a freelance writer, yeah. right? Yeah. So, I mean, yeah. That's what it's, we have to do. That's what you have to do. You have to deal with people. You have to deal with, you, you have to deal with people. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, yeah, I mean, so Lazy Fascist, like, when, yeah, well, Cameron was someone who, like, I think it was, like, 2009, someone showed me at the Ask Goblins of Auschwitz. And they were like, hey, this is like the crazy off-the-wall writing you were doing. And I was like, no way. Like, you can actually do that. You can actually write about that stuff. Mm-hmm. And he was describing the Bizarro scene. And so that's when I got into um, Eraserhead and then, you know, Lazy Fascist. And, I mean, like Scott McClanahan. I mean, I'm looking at my bookshelf right now. Um, there's just, like, so many really great uh, authors that kind of came through and got their start with uh, with Lazy Fascist. And we're really fortunate to be working with Cameron on a book that's coming out in September. And uh, when I talk to him, I just like try to be a sponge and soak up as much as I can. I, I try not to like, you know, fanboy over him and like ask him too many questions, but still uh, he's, he has a good vision and a really respect for, you know, everything that, that he did for the small press scene. I feel like when I got into the small press scene, Yet again, it was all an accident. I don't know how I got into it. I stumbled into it. But I never knew when I was supposed to fangirl over certain people. I never knew who the big shots were. 
until later on someone was like, holy shit, that was like Sam Pink you were just talking to. And I was like, ah, oh, that's a cool guy. <laughs> yeah, I think it's almost better. Like, because uh, uh, there, there's some people who, when we send out blurb requests, some people, like, I look them up and I'm like, oh, cool, you know, they're, they're an author. Like, that makes sense. They're like, I'll like read something that they, they've written. And they're like, okay, cool. Like, I, now I know who this person is. And then later it's like, oh my gosh, you know, that was so and so. Uh, and then, uh, and as like, I'm almost happy, like I didn't know it was someone that a lot of people look up to. I mean, I, I kind of like, I don't know. I, I'm kind of over, <laughs> over hero worship as is, but I think that if, uh, yeah, if, if I knew that they had, you know, thousands and thousands of beloved fans, uh, it would maybe be like more anxiously, like critiquing the Boulder request email or something. I think I definitely would be a little bit more aware. I tried to, but I'll admit it right here and now. I wasn't aware how big Bud Smith was before we published him. Oh, okay. Like, I really yeah. loved his writing. Yeah. I was like, this is fantastic. I would love to, like, publish it. And then I was like, holy shit, everybody loves you. I had no idea. Wait, Bud Smith is famous? Yeah. <laughs> no, I'm just joking. I know. It just blew my mind, too. Yeah. But yeah. yeah, it always blows my mind anytime I meet someone. And I was like, "Oh shit, that was a big deal. I didn't know that." Yeah, and I, th- I mean, yeah, it's because they- I have other writer <laughs> friends who like fanboy over the other writers, and I was like, "Dude, you're making yourself look so uncool it- right now." <laughs> right? Yeah, you're diminishing your own writing <laughs> right now. Yeah. Yeah, yeah there, and there's like authors that like I have a pretty good relationship with, and when I when other people uh, like come to me and they're like, "Oh my gosh, you published so and so," and it's like, "Oh yeah," like they're not. I mean, people are people. I don't think that we should like put them on a pedestal. But yeah, that's exactly what I think too. Is that it always shocks me when people do do that. I don't know. It blows my mind. Hell, it blows my mind when people even read my work. So, yeah. Yeah, I, I have it. I have it right here. I have your uh, your book. I want to feel happy, but I only feel. Holy shit! Yeah, this I is a... the third interview in a row that I've actually had someone who's bought the book. Okay. Yeah, it's right here. Wow, that is so lit. You have totally made my day. Okay, enough about me. We're here for you. Do you want to do a reading finally? Uh, today I'm going to read from my. 11,111 word chapter in Collected Voices in the Expanded Field. It deals with a lot of themes and they all relate back to this major uh, universal theme of consciousness. And my chapter is set up in a unique way as the last chapter in the book, where the first narrative is on the right side of the page. So you read all the right pages and then you flip the book around and uh, you start reading it upside down and backwards to the, the, towards the front of the book. And so I'm going to be reading from that second narrative, and I'm going to read the last four and a half pages of that second narrative. And this book is available as a name your price download on the 1111 Press website. So feel free to uh, download it and read it for free. There's 34 authors that are in here. And you can buy a physical copy on our website, and we sell that at cost plus the cost of shipping. 
And the last thing I'll say is that uh, please bear with me as I'm reading. Um, I might stumble a little bit. Uh, I'm dyslexic. And so even when I read my own writing, I have a hard time uh, keeping all the words straight on the page. And uh, typically I use a voice to speech um, software. <laughs> but uh, yeah, in, in this case, I'm going to actually go power through and read these uh, four or so pages. So here we go. After the bus driver drove over an unrecognizable animal, scattered across the entire width of the road, he asked the driver why there were so many, and why nothing was done with the remains. Well, you gotta watch out for them deer, especially at night. Had a friend once hit a 12-pointer, going about 70, kid you not. Hit him so hard it sucked the lungs clean out of him. Blew the sucker 200 feet down the interstate. Kept the head, though. Police let him do that. Had a tarpon back and popped him in the trunk. They're not all bad, especially when you're dealing with a county cop. Kind of mounted over the fireplace at his up north place. Beautiful buck. He returned to his seat and thought about how the driver would tell his friends about the Urdu man who asked about their beloved roadkill. I told him, now nah, we don't need it like you towel heads do. We might put a good looking 12 pointer up over the fireplace. If you kill it with an F 250, you hear? A kill is a kill. I don't care if it's with your truck. Shit. Give me another one of them beers. He thinks, before you can build a new identity, you must be like this. Empty. Like the voice of a child at night in the home of addicts, when they find their parents' overdosed bodies lying on the floor. Empty, like the eyes of animals in cages, awaiting their next injection of an experimental drug, empty like the hearts of the elderly after their bodies have failed them and everything else has been taken. He thinks once you are empty, you will realize you are only a collection of stories. It is only when you see yourself as a story that you will be free to change and create your future. Back at the hotel, he clicks play on his music app. Asha Puthali sings, Neither one of us wants to be the first to say goodbye. And he thinks about the music video he saw at a friend's apartment in Montreal as a freshman at McGill. He had just moved there and joined a club for students from India, though most of the group grew up in the West. And he told them that he too grew up in the West, in Michigan, in America, where his mother teaches chemistry at the university there and his father works in the auto industry as a consultant because he has developed many patents at Hindusun Motors. They were all sitting around talking about extended family and how hard it is to find good food here. Someone popped in a VHS tape and everyone was amazed with the quality. This is the future. And there she was. When he saw Asha singing to an empty boat, he felt something inside of himself the deep-down part no one knows about except for him, the secret place he returns to every night when he is asleep on the floor of his residence, because the bed there feels like one big giant marshmallow. And Asha was singing about that place, and she was singing directly to him, saying, I too have a place where only I am allowed to go, allowed to be completely myself with myself, and no, I too will never tell anyone about it. Because it's nice knowing 
Other people have their secrets, have places you will never know about. He thinks about how he ever got from that moment in time to the one he's at now, and then thinks about how he ever got from the orphanage to McGill on scholarship. Well then, he says to himself, not wanting to get caught in the past, because if he did, he would never leave it. And then he felt it, the urge. He grabs the hotel information booklet and orders room service, orders the most expensive meal on the menu, and doesn't leave a tip. And when it comes, he can't bring himself to eat it. Whatever it was that was placed in front of him, it looks like it welcomed death with open paws. Just one of the millions who were bred for food in a tiny cage, cut open and drained of their blood, seasoned and slow-cooked for some overweight banker or politician's enjoyment. It wasn't that he was an animal rights activist. The whole act of eating, putting something inside himself, was repulsive. But then, there were times when the urge to eat, rather, to consume, overtook his disgust. He'd binge on entire sleeves of salted crackers and canned fish and feel repulsed by himself afterwards. The same was with every other normal human function. Putting something inside of himself, putting himself inside of something. It was as if he was a different person during the extreme times of desire. Thirst, hunger, sleep, sex. That he totally broke from his version of reality. What the hell is sleep? A loss of control? A blackout? A theater of suppressed thought that plays out as bad dreams? These are the thoughts that race around his body, always in the negative, before succumbing to the urge and immersing himself completely. Things only make sense in the moment a decision is made. That's why people can't understand bad choices, because they are the right choice in that moment, and only that moment, and no one else can ever be in that moment with you. It was dream logic, he thought. Dreams, he thought, and what do trees dream about? The axe, windstorms, children climbing on their limbs and picking at their bark? And the flower, do they know that their throats will be cut so they can be put on some office receptionist's desk? The deer, do they dream of the hunter or the highway? The last place he wanted to be was in his own mind. The last place, alone, by himself, with only himself uh, for company. Eyes closed to the world, another set open. Your mouth is dry. You know the thirst should wake you, but it only makes the dream feel more real. You look at your hands, but you cannot stop the ride. You want to wake up, and if you can't do that, at least wake up in the dream as you remember yourself as an eight-year-old so you can stop it all from happening, but it moves on with indifference without you being able to stop it, so you surrender like you've always surrendered. Your father gets out of his new car, a brown Premier Padmini, and walks over to the other car. But before he gets there, you are already ducking in the back seat. There was no thought, just movement, out of some reflex, likely from the noise, but you hear nothing, because this isn't real, and you just know certain things in dreams, just as you know this time will be the last. You know your father has been shot, and your mother is taken from the car by men who grab her at the wrists. There is a 
knowing of the sound, the pain, the future, the clawing at one's vocal cords, more gunfire, and you're still there, somehow, in the back seat, under the blankets, and under the trash of banana peels and plastic wrappers, and only when it gets dark do you dare move from your hiding place. And then you're walking, walking away from the car, away from your life, away from the bodies that are motionless, too motionless, and they don't even look like bodies. And then you walk away from yours too, as the sand sucks the blood back into the ground. Death is only death. You thought there would be something more final about it. But life's biggest changes are never as final as they should be. And now you're walking towards the mountains because you know that there will be people there who can make this right. They can make it all okay. They can fix your dad and your mom. And when that happens, maybe they'll be able to fit you back into your body because for the last 40 years, you've never felt at home inside of yourself. Like that person over there, standing by the water at the end of the path. And then you remember that it all begins and ends like this, with someone you vaguely recognize standing by the river. And they tell you it's time, and you nod your head. Come down to the river, they say. And you do. And you take their hand. And they take yours, and they tell you that this will be just like all the other times, and all the times to come, and that being alive is difficult, and that you've done a good job, and everything will be okay. And then you jump into the river together, because you know that everything is mental, and metaphors are the way we understand ourselves, and the world, and our place in it. And you let the river take you until you begin to remember that time and space are only metaphors too, and nothing can be created or destroyed, and you lie peacefully in water, looking up into a vast, uncaring emptiness. All right, that was Andrew Wilt of 1111 Press. If you want to check the site and support Indie Lit, go to his page, 1111press.com, and maybe buy something cool. Remember, it's nonconformist, just like you, so you're crazy if you don't find something you dig. His Twitter account is at Andrew J. Wilt, so you can reach out to him there. As always, if you want to get to know us more, find Textual Healing on Twitter at Pod Healing and take a look at our website, textualpodcast.com. We are available on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Subscribe, leave us a review. We love it when you send us good vibes. Check out past episodes and keep a lookout for the rad as fuck ones to come. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the show.